And uh, I want to welcome you, those of you who are here, others who are getting their refreshments and heading our way. Uh, and then also just those who are watching by live stream. Uh, Sunday, we, we had difficulty. We wouldn't have, those of us who were in service wouldn't have known that, but there was a technical problem. We couldn't get the, the Wi-Fi to work on Sunday morning. So those who maybe are shut in or who just cannot get to us, maybe they live in another part of the country and they like listening in to our services, they, they would not have been able to experience that with us Sunday morning. And what a, what a wonderful morning we had. I love the three hymns we chose and just the sweet spirit in that room as we worshiped, as we studied the word, and uh, it was just a special time. And so tonight we're going to get into the word. We're going to uh, allow the Lord to help us to continue in our study, 2 Samuel chapter 4. And hopefully we'll get through chapter 5 tonight because both chapters are small. So let's go ahead if we can and begin with prayer. And I need to be mindful that there, and share with you that there are many people who are sick or who uh, have uh, struggled with death in a family, in their family, or other types of issues that people are facing. It's almost as if you get these waves of a spiritual warfare. And um, I feel like we're kind of in some of that right now. And the answer to that is pray. I mean, that's the greatest thing we can do is seek God and hand things over to the Lord. It's not about us trying to manage it and handle it and carry it and, and fix it. It's about being His sheep and just coming and laying down before Him and allowing the Lord to minister to the needs that are in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so let's go before the Lord right now. Father, with, with that in mind, we come before you as your children, as, as your sheep. We come as servants of the one true living God. And uh, you have placed us here on this earth to be stewards of your things, stewards of your message, stewards of, of the love of God. And that love just compels us this evening to pray over the needs of so many, those who might be watching from live stream and maybe their family members, but also members of our fellowship. Lord, we, we lift up uh, Laura uh, this evening, her husband, uh, Don Aldridge, who was a member of our church, passed away this week uh, with COVID. And this is the first member of our church that has lost their life to that pandemic. And we just are heavy hearted for Laura and for uh, their family. And I pray that you'd minister to them and that you would allow us to, as a church to do our part to come near to them and comfort them and love them in their time of deep sorrow and need. And Lord, they're, they're not the only ones. There, there's others who are struggling and facing all types of issues, whether it be difficulties in marriage, whether it be maybe finding the right job, maybe it's financial, it's possible that there are those who are facing COVID right now. We, I know that in our fellowship, we've had several outbreaks of people who were thankful that they're not coming to church with it, uh, but Lord, that's, they're hurting over it. And, and uh, so we, we pray for them. We pray for your protection, that it would not become something uh, greater than uh, simply a flu that they can get through. And uh, we are thankful that in all things, Lord, you use every type of of situation, every type of affirmity, every, every setback you use, if we're willing, you're willing to use it to grow us, to mature us, 
to develop us into the people that uh, bring honor and glory to your name. So we are thankful, Lord, for how everything in life matters to you and that we can give glory to you every day of the week. There's, never, there's no such thing as a Christian as having a bad day in the Lord. You might have a bad day in the flesh, but not in the Lord. And so we're thankful for that. May we be reminded of that and may we walk in that. But Lord, come near to those who are hurting. Come near to those who are in times of grief and bereavement uh, for their sorrow. We pray that you would comfort them. And may we be the hands and feet of Jesus to people around us who are hurting. And that's not just in our church, but all over our community. And may we, may we truly be your hands and feet to them. And we thank you tonight now as we open the word that we can grow. And may the word have its time and its, its opportunity to do a work in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And may it change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, last week we saw David mourning the death of a military commander. It was Saul's military commander, uh, Abner, who had passed uh, because he was killed by Joab, David's military command commander. Uh, David was unaware that Joab was going to take uh, Abner's life. Uh, it, was a, it was a revenge killing on the part of Joab, and uh, this left David in great mourning. He spoke a curse over the house of Joab, uh, and David mourned and called Joab to mourn and called for Israel to mourn over the death of Saul's military commander. And, and what makes that interesting for us to remember is it was Saul who was out to kill David. And Joab, I'm sorry, Abner would have been uh, the commander who was out trying to kill David. And yet here David shows honor and respect to this man and his death. And it was not David's desire for anyone to die except for when the Lord removes them. And in this case, it was not the Lord. It was his own military commander. And so David uh, mourns the death of Abner. Now we come into chapter 4 and verse 1, when Ishbosheth, that is a difficult name to pronounce quickly, five times. Uh, go ahead if you'd like to try. Um, I'll give you the microphone and we'll all get a good laugh. But uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, uh, when he heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Just quickly to give the backdrop of that, of course, uh, when, when Abner was alive, he raised up Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to be the next king, the ruler over Israel. Now, that means that he would have ruled over 11 of the 12 tribes. Uh, David had rulership over Judah, but that was it. And it, I'm sorry, Benjamin, thank you. Needed to be corrected on that. The other tribes had gone with Ishbosheth, but it wasn't because Ishbosheth himself was an a influential leader, it was because Abner was influential. And Abner raised Ishbosheth up to put him in as a pawn. He's simply the front guy for Abner, who's behind the scenes with all the power, being the military commander, calling the shots. And so when Abner dies, Ishbosheth, who's simply this front guy, uh, even though he's related to Saul, uh, great fear comes over him because he's a weak leader. He doesn't really have the influence of his people. Another reason why, why fear came over him when Abner died was because now he's exposed 
to someone trying to take the throne from him and his commander is not around. And that's exactly what we see play out here. Verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was uh, Bonay, and the other's name was Rechab. They were both sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Now, last week we talked about these power grabs that are taking place. It was Abner who grabbed power after Saul's death, and he didn't want to sit on the throne himself, but he wanted to put somebody on the throne that he could manipulate and, and do his work through, and that was Ishbosheth. Uh, now we see another power grab that's about to take place. There is this battle that wages between David and his men and his people and Ishbosheth and his people, which would be Saul's people. And it wasn't that David was trying to take the throne from Ishbosheth. He had no desire to do that unless the Lord uh, raised up that opportunity. Uh, but it, now we see that it's Saul's own people who are turning on one another. What, what spider is it that eats their, their young? Uh, forget, is it the black widow? And uh, so here you see this black widow syndrome. It's in the, in the house of Saul. Um, both of these villages, by the way, Beeroth and Gittim, were villages belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. And last week we talked about this power grab, so let's take a look more closely at verse 4. Jonathan, that would be Saul's son, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So you've got Ishbosheth, and now you've got Mephibosheth. Try to say those, both of those fast together. Okay. So the picture here, and we talked about this before, I don't want to spend time on it, but uh, Ish, Mephibosheth was not crippled because of his own doing. It was in the hands of, of this woman who fell and, and made him lame. And uh, we'll learn more about Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel here later on. Uh, but I think the reason they bring that out here is to communicate that because of his youth and because of his, his uh, disability, uh, he would not be a threat to Ishbosheth, who is the king, supposed king, uh, now that Abner's gone. And again, these deaths of the power brokers brought out the worst in people. Power is everything. And being the ruler of Israel is the prize that drives the treachery that we see happening here, and we're going to see happen. But Mephibosheth is not a player in that game because of his age and his physical limitations. By the way, uh, when Ishbosheth died, Mephibosheth was 12 years old. So he's just a boy, but he's a lame boy. Okay? Now we get back to the deceit and treachery. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, you, you think this was a, just a good secular novel when you read it. But uh, verse 5 Now the sons of Ramon, uh, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Benay, uh, they set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest which was common in that day, in the heat of the day, leaders would have taken a rest. Um, 
And it was also common that these two men, who were captains uh, of raiding parties under Saul, uh, and that means that they were also under Ishbosheth, it was common for them to show up for a couple reasons. One, they were going to gather grain for the, for the men, the soldiers, and take it back to them. And they also received pay to take back to the, to the soldiers. So they're, them showing up uh, close to where Ishbosheth is uh, located was not a big deal. So nobody would have questioned them coming in. Verse 6, And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him, Ishbosheth, in the stomach. And then Rechab and Benay, his brother, escaped. So, under the pretense of a typical routine, these two brothers, who are captains, uh, they kill Ishbosheth. Uh, oh, the joys of rulership, huh? <laughs> uh, you always have to keep your eyes open, and you always have to have somebody looking over your shoulder for you. And uh, these guys took him out. Now, here's the takeaway in this this story. If Besheff didn't gain any real loyalty among his troops when Abner died, because they were Abner's men. They were Abner's men. In fact, if Saul had still been alive and Abner and Saul had a falling out, the men likely would have followed Abner. So with Abner gone, now there's a vacancy in the power structure, and these guys know that Ishbosheth is nothing more than a pawn for Abner, who's no longer around, so we don't want him to be our pawn. He won't respect us, so let's just go ahead and take him out. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, and, and, and really what's exposed here is the, the weakness of, of uh, Ishbosheth. He, he was never God's choice for king. David is God's choice for king. For all of Israel, the 11 tribes plus the one, but uh, Ishbosheth followed Abner, what he said, became a supposed leader, and now he's gone. Verse 7, when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the uh, Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. So, to avoid uh, easy detection, these men travel down through this Jordan Valley. Uh, that's a plain that ran alongside the Jordan River. Makes sense, right? The Jordan Valley next to the Jordan River. And, uh, but nobody would have traveled that route typically, and so they were safe traveling. They come south down to David, who's at Hebron. Again, Hebron was a uh, city of refuge that had been that way for for a long time, and David is, is actually, that's why he's there. It's a city of refuge. And uh, they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Why would they have thought that? Because Saul tried to kill David over and over again and chased him for 15 years. So I guess they're correct in seeing Saul as the enemy of David, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul, and on his offspring. Well, they were correct in their understanding of Saul being an enemy while he was chasing David, but they were incorrect in understanding David's view of Saul. While he was an enemy, if you look at it from a distance, David never tried to kill Saul. He never wanted to get re revenge or, or, or return the spear that was thrown at him. 
And these guys, uh, this is called a cosmic oversight, thinking that somehow you know exactly what is right to do, and you're going to go reward David with the head of Saul's son. Maybe they didn't know the story of the uh, Amalekite, the, the servant who was near the battlefield where Saul was about to die. He had already been mortally wounded, and Saul asked him, supposedly, this is what the Amalekite claims, to thrust the spear through him. Go ahead and kill me. Uh, that was not the case. It was Saul's uh, uh, armor bearer who was asked to do that, and he wouldn't do it. And then he, he, he lived long enough to see Saul die. He never mentioned anything about an Amalekite coming up and killing Saul. So he made that up. But he comes to David with, with Saul's things. And he's thinking David's going to give him a reward. What did David do? You took out the king? You took out the Lord's anointed? Oh, he, the guy, yeah, the guy that was trying to kill you. He threw spears at... That's not my... That's the Lord's work. God will correct that. God, if there's revenge, that the Lord will take... I don't touch that. That's the Lord's anointed. And so what happened? You're going to kill some man or claim to kill? Then you'll be killed. And he lost his life. And now these two knuckleheads, they show up with the head of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and uh, they make the announcement, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So uh, David uh, wasn't impressed. Uh, and he pronounced a judgment over these two men. And the judgment was death for killing uh, the son of Saul. Uh, verse 9, But David answered Rechab and Benai ben his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Betharite, uh, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for the news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hang them beside the pool at Hebron. So they killed them, chopped off their hands and their feet, and hung them up for all to see. What's the picture? Uh, don't mess with those that God has placed in power, Saul, and don't take matters in your own hands. When you see a wrong that doesn't mean you commit a wrong to make it right. Two wrongs don't make a... And this is, the, this is David, I mean, putting it in a visual display. You have no right to take matters in your own hands. The Lord is sovereign. There is nothing that happens that he cannot handle and that he doesn't have a plan in it, through it, and for his glory. So leave it alone. It's not for you to decide. Don't make it personal. Don't take it personally. Don't, don't take control. Don't build a plan. 
The Bible says many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails. And David made notice. You can't say God is in it when it requires you to sin. They murdered a man in cold blood. And the sovereignty of God and his providential hand, uh, he brought down those two men through David. Now, David brought his judgment against their murderers of Ishbosheth and had them executed as he had done to the man who claimed to kill Saul. David's not playing around. That's a message to all the tribes. Number one, I'm not going to go around killing everybody who had something against me. In fact, he befriended Abner before Abner's death. He sent Abner away in peace. Joab disturbed the peace that David put on Abner. And now these men have gone to Ishbosheth. David had no desire to cause harm to Ishbosheth. Look, when you have, he knew that Ishbosheth's weak. Why mess with him? Let God handle that. And even if he was powerful, look, for 15 years, David didn't try to take the throne. Why? Because God would do it in God's time, and that's exactly what happened. And so David's sending a loud message to everyone. It also clears him of any wrongdoing that somehow he told Joab to take out uh, Abner or he, that he had some kind of a play in this, having these two men take out the king, uh, the ruler. He did not. So he hangs him up as a, as, a, as a visible picture of two wrongs don't make a right. See, God's not looking for men and women who are great in their own eyes or in the eyes of others. God's looking for men and women who see how great God is and under obedience to that great God, they fulfill His will and purpose, period. They're not, out, they're not in it for themselves. They're not in it to make a name. They're not in it for status. They're not in it for popularity. They're not in it for influence and power and control. They are in it because God called them to it and will obey what God says, and then God will handle all the other stuff. I don't have to focus on that. Uh, that that's Vero Bible Fellowship for all of our leaders, our elders, our, our pastors uh, who are pastors, and our, our, uh, our leadership team, our staff, our volunteer staff. This is the Lord's church. None of us have, can lay a finger to it. It doesn't belong to any, any one of us. It doesn't belong to the whole group of us. The church doesn't even belong to the church members who make up the church. The church belongs to Christ. He died on the cross for it. It's His church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and, and so, we, so when bad things happen, let God handle it. It's the Lord's church. It's the Lord's work. He can handle it. You're not better than God. I, sometimes I look at the way we, we, we handle things and I think, that person really thinks that they're smarter than God. They're going to have to help God out here. And i got to tell you, there's been many times when, when I did the same thing. I didn't set out to, to undermine God, but I did. I, I, I knee-jerked. Or I was so upset with a situation, well, I'm going to handle that. I'm going to straighten that out right now. And the Lord's like, uh, who, whose church are you working in, Greg? Is that my church or your church? Amen? Yeah. It's for all of us. 
In the home, the same thing. Your children belong to the Lord. He's the one that blessed you with the ability to bear children, to, to have children. Give them to the Lord. Let the Lord handle it. Get, let the Lord do His work. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, prior to this, only one of the tribes of Israel recognized uh, David as king. Now, all the other tribes, all 11 tribes have assembled at Hebron. And verse 1b, and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, that means that these 11 tribes are now singing a different song. They were all behind Ishbosheth. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if these three things, if they knew about David, if they on their own, apart from Ishbosheth, would have said, we're not going to follow anyone else other than David because we know that that's the one that God raised up. When did they decide to follow David? After Ishbosheth was dead. And you know, that happens in life. People who all of a sudden suddenly become more friendly to you because whatever power, whatever influence that they had prior is no longer there and now they're looking for and they come to you. It would have been nice if they had come before they lost whatever it was that they were holding on to. They don't do it. That's just, that's just human nature. And that's exactly what's happening here. So, but there's, it's interesting. There, there are three characteristics we find from verses 1 and 2 that should mark anyone who leads God's people. I don't, whether it's Old Testament, whether it's New Testament, it doesn't really matter. Let's look at these three things that they spoke of. First of all, a leader must belong to God's people in heritage and heart. You are bone and flesh. So the 11 tribes recognize that David belonged to the family of Israel. Okay? So any leader in God's church, any leader in the home who loves God, recognizes that, I, that this family that I am now a steward of my family belongs to the Lord, and I belong to the Lord. So why would I step out on my own and try to lead my family in the ways that I want? No, I, I now am a believer in Jesus Christ. He's my God. He's my Father. I'm His child. And I want my kids to see the relationship that I have with my Father. And secondly, a leader must demonstrate capability to lead. What did he say? It was you, David, who led out and brought Israel in. David, you were the one that was the commander on the field of battle. We saw you. You have that ability to lead. And a leader must demonstrate capability to lead. You don't, look, somebody says, well, I want to be the leader. And then they put a little tag on their shirt, and it says their name, and below it, it says leader. And now they think they're a leader. There's an old proverb, it's not in the Bible, but it should be. It says, he who thinketh he leadeth, but have no followers, is not leading. You don't lead by a title on your shirt. You don't lead by status. You don't lead by name. 
You lead by influence. You might have the title pastor. But if the custodian in the church is more spiritually led of God, and he has the favor of the people because he walks in wisdom and people come to him for help, you can call yourself the leader as the pastor, but you're not the leader. The custodian's the leader. And that's okay. Amen. Don't ever think that by your title, you can and cannot do things. That, that's India. That, that's the caste system. You're, you're born into one of the lower castes, and you'll never get out of it. Your parents were, you know, they were farmers. You're going to be a farmer. Your dad was a butcher. You're going to be a butcher. That's just the way it is. You'll never be a doctor. You'd have to be part of the Brahmin caste to be a professional. And, and, but that's not God. God takes people of all different backgrounds and different stories and messed up, screwed up lives, and he turns them into influencers because they start trusting God and they believe in God and they read his word and they walk by his word and people see this man walking by faith and they want to be around him. That's the leader. That's the leader. It has nothing to do with title. And lastly, a leader must have an evident call from God. Well, that's important too. How can you lead if God's not called you, right? And so he, they said, uh, you led out and brought us in. And then the last thing they said, Lord's, the Lord said to you, God said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So on those three bases, the 11 tribes said, we come under your leadership. You are our king. Again, why did they wait until their leader was dead? So they're culpable, right? But God forgives. And by the way, uh, you know, we're old enough now as a church, three years old, that you're able to see those who come to church, like every other church, who are present, but they haven't sold out to Christ. They're not getting involved. They're just attending. Maybe for whatever reason, maybe they think, okay, I just like, you know, the people there. I just like the whatever. And but they're not really committed to Christ. Are you and I to measure them and judge them and try to scare them away or threaten them? No, we're not. We're to leave them be. The Lord will do the separating. Amen. What we're to do is to continue to love them and preach the gospel to them in hopes that they will change and come for the right reasons. People who come and who might be selfish, they don't ever care to think about serving and helping other people or, or serving in a ministry. They just come for themselves. Well, you can make those judgments all day long. Every church has people like that. That's okay. People will, throughout my life, I've had people say to me, how do you do it? How do I do what? How do you pastor people who just aren't changing? you got people who are just the same all the time. They just come for themselves. They never. I'm like, those are God's people you're talking about. They're not my people. I, I'm not offended by that. Why? Because it's not personal to me. 
It's the Lord. Those are the Lord's people. And if they're not right with the Lord, the Lord will handle that. I just need to be faithful to keep preaching in a way so that the truth of God's word by the work of the Holy Spirit can reach and convict them. But I can't convict anybody. Only the Holy Spirit can convict, right? So what should we do in the meantime? Love them! Love the hell out of them! Really? I mean, just love them. And watch God do a mighty work in them and change them. Amen. All right, let me get a drink after that. The cursing preacher. No, I was not meaning it like that. Whatever influence Satan has in us or whatever influence the flesh has in us, God can remove it. Amen? So we just need to love. Love, love, love. That's what it's about. So, uh, let's keep on here. Verse 3, So the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, David, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So now he's king over all of Israel. See, so all the elders of Israel. So now all 12 tribes are there. Now, from this text here in Samuel, we don't get a clear picture of the magnitude of this event, them all gathering together at Hebron. So let me give you what would be the, the more descriptive uh, narrative. It's found in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Write it down. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 23 through 40. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you what it says in a summary, okay? 1 Chronicles 12, 23 through 40. It describes this great assembly that gathered in Hebron to recognize David as king over all Israel. Listen to this. It describes the impressive army that came to Hebron. The number of soldiers is over 340,000 that showed up. Now that's a little different picture than the picture you had in your mind, isn't it? Wow! It then describes the scene. All these men of war who keep their ranks, they come to Hebron with a loyal heart in order to make David king over all Israel. They stayed with David for three days. They ate with him. They drank with him. They made merriment together. Why? They were rejoicing over the Lord and what the Lord had done by actually preserving David and raising David up and they see it clearly now. Their eyes, whatever, for whatever reason, their clouds were covering up. They couldn't see. Now they see it, and now they're rejoicing over it. Thank God. Amen. Amen. It's at this event that David bound himself formally to certain obligations toward the Israelites, including their rights and responsibilities to one another and to the Lord. So David, in this covenant, is telling them, you got to make this not only to me and me to you, but we're making it to God. This commitment to one, like a church, we have a membership covenant. We're serious about that. Not because we believe that somehow if we have a, a membership covenant signed with your name, that somehow now you're saved. You don't get saved by going to Vero Bible Fellowship, and you don't get saved by signing a covenant. The covenant says that you admit that you, you confess that you're saved. 
But that's not what the covenant's for. The covenant is first and foremost for, the, for you to one another. I'm committed to this church and these things that are listed there. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. We're in this together as a church that God has raised up. He's called us into this along with you. We're in this together. Amen? Amen. And it's before the Lord. It's not before the pastors or the elders. It's the Lord that we do that to. And that's what has, has happened here. But it's interesting here. We see the early signs of a divided kingdom. Now, that doesn't happen for quite some time yet, where Israel and Judah separate. But you see the foundations that allow it to happen. They were never broken, these foundations. They should have been busted up. They weren't. Okay? This underlying sense of separate identity, it was felt by Israel and Judah. Um, it's in chapter 20 of 2 Kings that we see the revolt of Sheba. Sheba was a man who just stood up and said, Who's go Why follow, follow me, let's go. And they stood up and followed him. How ridiculous. And, and there was a battle. And then, of course, you get into 1 Kings chapter 12 when Rehoboam is the king, and he's a weak leader, and under his leadership, the actual kingdom divides into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But here, even now at David's inauguration, we see the rumblings of these two groups that still want to keep their identity. There is something in that for us as believers that here we submit to God, He becomes our God, we become His children, yet I still have my ways. I, I sat with someone yesterday who said to me, uh, in the midst of our discussion, they said, well, my father was like this. As if that's the excuse why they are like that. And they're a believer. In other words, they're letting the identity of their past take precedent over their identity in Christ. We can all be there, can't we? Things that we do, ways that we act that are not becoming to God. It does not reflect His image in us. It reflects our fleshly character. And we just kind of hold on to it. No, I'm a believer. Oh, yeah, no, I love the Lord. No, I go to church. Uh, there's a division in your heart. You're partly given to God, and there's other things that you're not ready to surrender to Him. Listen, the happiest, the most content, the most fruitful Christians on the face of the earth are those who have become slaves to Jesus Christ, not to their flesh. If only we could all see it that way. And that's what's happening here. Verse 4, David was 30 years old. When he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So what he's saying there is 15 years of preparation in the school of brokenness delivered by Saul at the hand of God. And then David was prepared to serve for 40 years as the king. It took 15 years in the school of brokenness for David to be presented as a king who could serve for 40 years. 
Also, it's interesting to note that even though it was a united kingdom now, they still have the two parts. Judah and Israel are distinguished here. He served over Judah for seven years, and then 33 years, for 33 years, he got in, Israel got in on it. Uh, so he served all 40 with, with Judah. He served 33 with Israel. Um, and the king, verse 6, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. So uh, after this wonderful celebration that took several days, uh, David now does not return or stay in Hebron. He now goes to Jerusalem. Um, this is a monumental move, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible more than any other city from Genesis to Revelation. Jerusalem is mentioned more. And from a wider range of the Bible. So what's interesting here, Jerusalem is located in the territory of Benjamin near the northern border of Judah. And it was a natural fortification. That's why Jerusalem was so, such a great city, one of the reasons. Uh, why other nations wanted it. I think it was the Ammonites who had it before the Jebusites. And uh, they, they wanted it because it was an elevated area. Jerusalem is literally elevated. It, on three sides, there are valleys. So it's not just having land and then having a valley. It's an elevation with a valley on three sides. The only side that, was not, uh, that was, did not have a valley was the north side. So that would have been the only side exposed that was, it was uh, uh, difficult to defend. The other three sides, nobody would really try to come up through those sides to get you because you've got the, the position of, of, of power, okay? Um, but by taking Jerusalem from the Jebusites, David was able to eliminate the foreign wedge. And that's why he went to Jerusalem at this time. You have the northern area of Israel. You've got the southern area of Judah. And in between the two at the northern tip of Judah... You've got the Jebusites in the, in the middle. And he wanted what was in the middle blocking the two removed. So that's why he goes to Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, the Jebusites uh, said to David when they heard that he was coming up against them in Jerusalem, look at this, verse 6, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. In other words, this city's so uh, secure, uh, our blind and lame can keep you out. Mocking David, okay? <laughs> uh, the, these folks were, by the way, Canaanites. Remember God, when he brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan? Okay, so they're part of that. And before they inhabited Jerusalem, again, it was inhabited by, I think, the Ammonites, and before them, who knows? Uh, but the reality is, uh, here they are boasting that the blind and lame could defend Jerusalem against David. Well, what do you think that does to David, who's a, who's a battle-tested warrior? <laughs> he, he probably said, uh, bring me a good drink. I'm going to sit back and let you guys go take that and just get a good laugh. I don't know, but uh, verse 7, nevertheless, nevertheless, okay? In other words, uh, okay, thank you for sharing that. Now, uh, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. 
So David goes up. Now, by the way, here in this particular verse is the first time that we hear the word Zion in the Bible. Okay? And it's the only time it's spoken in 1 and 2 Samuel. In fact, it's the first time we've heard it spoken at all. And it doesn't mean, here in the text, it doesn't refer to the whole uh, of Jerusalem. It refers to a stronghold in Jerusalem that was set up on the southwest corner of the city that the Jebusites had set up. So uh, David just, they said, well, the lame and blind will keep you out. We're not worried about you. And David's like, <clears throat> okay, hey, go, go take it. And get, let's just go take their stronghold. The, the part of the city that's most defended, let's go after that. And they, they didn't even have any trouble. They took it, okay? Uh, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. <laughs> he throws it right back on him. Okay, let's go attack the lame and the blind. Uh, and so what, what is he referring to here by the water shaft? Um, he's referring to uh, the spring and the tunnel that carried the water from the spring outside the city into Jerusalem. And so he's saying, uh, let's just go up through the tunnel. All the stronghold, but let's just skip all that. Let's just go up through the tunnel and take it. See, David's a military commander. David understands strategy. He understands how to fight battles. This is his forte, okay? And, uh, and so verse uh, 8, they take it. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house, or into the house. Uh, that's what David was repeating that they had said. Well, guess what? Uh, they did come in. Uh, on the same principle, listen. See, David, being, who is representing God, he's God's man. He's the steward of God. And David found a way to conquer the stronghold in Jerusalem. So in reality, what people saw was God conquering the stronghold. David did not bring the attention to himself. It's the Lord's work. He already stated that earlier here at the ceremony, at the covenant, signing of the covenant. And, 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 and the same principle is true for you and I today. Listen, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is your conqueror. There are strongholds that come up in our lives there are sins that we get entangled with. There are sins that become strongholds. Literally, it's as if that stronghold tells you when you're going to sin. It brings a temptation at when you're the weakest, and it just causes you to sin. Listen, not anymore. You now belong to Jesus Christ. You're alive in Him, not in your ability to fight against sin. He's the one who paid the price. The full penalty was paid. He's the one who conquered death, hell, and the grave. God raised him through the power of the resurrection. He can overcome the strongholds of anybody's life. We don't have to give into that nonsense. There's no entrenchment of sin that has captured you like a stronghold that the power of our risen Lord cannot overcome by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of, called it the city of David. 
And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. I'll talk about that, the Milo, in just a second. But let's just go back. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. He lived in the stronghold. Isn't it interesting how the Lord tells us through the Apostle Paul, Paul said to the church in Corinth, He, God, He's the God of all comfort. And we comfort others with the comfort we ourselves receive from the Lord. We're not the ones who do the comforting because we never, got, we never won any victories. Jesus won the victory so he can bring the comfort. And isn't it interesting how David, where does he set up? He sets up on the stronghold. What was supposed to be the thing he couldn't conquer. God sets it right up on top of that. In your life, isn't it interesting how so many of you who have a story to tell, you were entrenched in sin, and now God's released you from that, and now guess what God does? He has you set up His ministry right on top of that particular type of sin. Some of you have faced a broken marriage. Maybe you had a spouse that was unfaithful. You could have gotten bitter. Bitter against people, bitter against God, bitter against the church, whatever. But God says, let's, let's just go ahead and conquer that temptation to be angry, to hold resentment, to be bitter. And let's give you a ministry to help married couples who are struggling. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us don't think that way. We think that's the last place God would be able to use me is where I used to have a problem. I used to be an addict, let's say. Maybe it's a drug addict. Oh, I, boy, are you kidding? God conquered that in you. Now you have an understanding of that particular sin unlike others. And God can use you to minister to others. I just love that about it, the story here. David lived in the stronghold. <laughs> that was the stronghold that he couldn't conquer. It was the stronghold so great that the lame and the blind could keep him out of it. And David said, let's just go conquer the lame and the blind. And then let's set up our house right there. That's, that's God. That's what our God can do. Now, he then said... And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. Milo means to be filled. It's literally speaking of a stone-filled terrace. There were many stone-filled terraces that were built to serve as part of Jerusalem's northern defenses. Remember I said that Jerusalem was very well established and, and could be defended from three sides, but the north side, it was exposed, so they built these stone terraces so they could defend from the north as well. That's what he's referring to. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. I love that. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That's true greatness. True greatness is what comes from the Lord, right? David knew greatness. He, he, he's experienced it. But he was by no means an overnight success. It wasn't because of his abilities that he was great. 
David came to this place of greatness because the Lord of hosts was with him. You see, in God's plan, there is almost always a hidden price to greatness. You don't become great just because by luck. You don't become great because you earned it, because you worked hard. Not, not true greatness. Worldly greatness, maybe, but not God greatness. Often those who become great among God's people experience great pain and difficulty before they ever get there. Why? Because that's part of the process of God refining them, preparing them for the great things He's going to do through them. To be great in God's eyes, you've got to be willing to be broken. You've got to be willing to be crushed and shattered in your own identity and what you think you are and how good you are and how many people like you. Oftentimes in the church, if you just really want to get honest about it, those who share the gospel are not going to be great in the world's eyes. The world will hate you, Jesus said, because they hated me first. But that's part of the price of being seen as great in God's eyes, is that you're willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. See, there it is. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew three things that made him his reign great. And every godly leader should know these three things as well. Every Sunday school teacher, every small group leader, every father, every mother of every Christian home should know these three things. Number one, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. It was God's doing and not his own. He knew it. If you're a parent, it's because of God's doing. Therefore, you should be totally reliant upon God to lead your children. You're not that good. You need God. Secondly, David exalted God's kingdom. David knew that the kingdom belonged to God. Therefore, he was a steward of God's kingdom, and he exalted God's kingdom. He didn't take it as his own. Okay? And thirdly, David knew that God wanted to use him as a channel to bless God's people. Just like David didn't own God's kingdom, David didn't own the people of the kingdom. He knew that God wanted to use him as a channel, as a vessel to bless his people. It was not for David's sake that he was lifted up. This is so important. It was not for David's sake that he was lifted up, but for the sake of the people of God that he was lifted up. When you see a leader who is lifted up because they want to be great, they want to have power, they want to be seen, they want the title, and so they do things with the people for their own personal benefit, that is not godly leadership. Godly leadership is simply obeying and following God in His work. And then when you are given God's people to, to serve with, you do everything for God's people in order to bring glory to God and what's best for them, not you. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. And David took more concubines. <laughs> the very next verse. David's doing all this stuff the right way, man, starting out, okay? Solid leadership. And he turns around and acts in the flesh. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And I, I, could, I would share the names, but you'll never hear them again except for Solomon and Nathan. 
the let's just be honest about this. The multiplication of David's wives and concubines was a direct violation of Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. David is in direct violation. So while David has a heart after God, don't think that everything David did was according to God. He was still clothed in flesh and blood, and just like you and I, David fell short. These marriages probably reflected David's involvement in international cultural exercises. What I mean is, if you're going to have an alliance with a particular king, uh, culturally, customarily, you take his daughter. So that's probably how a lot of this happened. We know that's the case for Solomon. You know, Solomon had more wives than any other king, but most of them were because uh, he was entering into these alliances with other kingdoms and nations. That doesn't make it right. I don't believe David had to do any of this, but he did. Okay? What we need to remember is in each case of polygamy in Scripture, the law of God is violated and the consequences of that polygamy are both negative and destructive. And believe me, it's real clear in David's life. He becomes the poster child for destruction because of polygamy. Now, at this point in 2 Samuel, there are two focuses. We're going to take a turn here in verse 18, or verse 17 rather, of chapter 5. And it will run through all the way to verse 14 of chapter 8. So chapter 5, the remainder of chapter 5, all of 6, all of 7, and much of 8 is going to cover two focuses, okay? Let me give them to you. Write, write these down so that when you study this passage, it's going to make sense to you because it seems like we're jumping around and we're even jumping ahead. But, but they're just trying to bring your attention to two focuses that David had to deal with. The first one Write this down in terms of the verses. Verses 17 of chapter 5 through verse 25. So 5, 17 to 25. And also chapter 8, verse 1 through 14. Those two sections are about the description of David's military accomplishments, his victories. Okay? And then in the middle of these two, in chapter 6, verses 1 through chapter 7, verse 29, 6-1 through 7-29, now we learn about David's concern for the Ark of the Covenant and a suitable building to house it, wanting to build a temple, a place for God, okay? So these are the two focuses of David's ministry, and, and or two very important focuses, and, uh, and they section it that way here in the text. Just giving you an insight. John MacArthur laid that out beautifully. That's where that comes from. It's really good stuff. Verse 17. Go back to chapter 5, verse 17. So now we're going to enter into David's military victories. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. So David now is the king over all of Israel. The last time the Philistines saw him, he was nothing but a vassal or a servant or a slave to the king of Gath, which is a Philistine king. Well, how in the heck did the guy become the king of all 12 tribes of Israel? Okay, well, guess what? The military commanders of the Philistines knew that David would turn. And they knew that he had conquered Goliath. 
and they knew what he could do when God was with him. And so all of a sudden, they're like, this guy just became the king. He's building, he's establishing in Jerusalem his government. Let's go strike now, right now, before he builds this thing too large for us to overtake. And that seems to be the whole intent here, okay? Verse 18, <laughs> excuse me. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Repham, or Repham. Uh, the valley of Repham, Repham literally means the valley of giants, okay? It was a plain located southwest of Jerusalem on the border between Judah and Benjamin. That was an area, it's a plain it's an area where they grew a lot of crops. The grain came for, that fed Jerusalem came from that plain. So, so now remember, the, the Philistines are very wise in military strategy. So they go and set up southwest of Jerusalem on the plain, which, by the way, was a popular place to be raided by different uh, bands of armies. They would come and raid the plains and take the, the, the grain or the wheat. And so here they are, they're setting up there, getting David's attention, okay? Verse 19, and David inquired of the Lord. This is a man after God's own heart. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perezim, and David defeated them there. And he said... The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. So it was so, that battle was, the picture of that battle is David and his men coming into the Philistines. We're talking probably hundreds of thousands. And they come into them and they move through them like water cleaning out, you know, a, an old uh, sewage line. They just, that water gushes right through like a spring breaking through the earth and the soil and just breaking forth to the surface. That's the picture of how, how uh, beautiful this, this victory was that God brought to Israel. I love that. And therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Now, uh, so... so the Philistines run, they get out because God has, has routed them and they had brought all their idols to the battlefield. You know, that's how God's going to help them through the battle. They're gods. And they just abandon their gods. <laughs> I love that, you know. People worshiping at God, you know, whatever that God is, you know, the God of who knows, the gods today. People have so many gods, There's so much idol worship today. But those idols can't see, they can't taste, they can't touch, they can't walk, they can't move, they can't do anything. And finally somebody comes to the realization that their God's not helping them and they just cast it off. Well, that's what the Philistines did and David's men picked them up. Here in the text it says they carried them away. That's not exactly the whole picture. Again, you've got to go to Chronicles to get the whole picture. 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 12. Here's what really happened. And they left their gods there and David gave command and they were burned. So David's men took all, gathered up all the gods and burned them. Why? David, being a leader after God's heart, did not want to leave them lying around or, or, or take them and put them somewhere 
get rid of them so that no one would ever find them and worship them again. See, that's what we have to do. If you really want to walk with the Lord, you can't toy with sin. You can't have a little side sin over here that you kind of protect and you just kind of walk in it. Because guess what? The enemy will come at the most opportune time when you're weak and he'll, he'll bring that sin back up. You've got to destroy that sin. You've got to destroy it. If, if there is a, an influence in your life that used to take you into sin, maybe it's a person, and whenever you get with that person, it never turns out well. You've got to destroy that friendship. You've got to destroy it. You can't leave that door open. Why? Because you know that when you're with that person, you're too weak, and you're liable to sin. So you remove that from your life. You do what you've got to do. If you have a history of alcoholism and you know there's a particular bar in town that you used to hang out in and you had friends in and you all drank together and you drank and you drank and you got drunk and it did nothing but, but hurt your life and destroy you and others around you, you stay away from that bar. You don't ever go in that part of, of that side of town. Stay off that street. Don't even drive down the street that could turn you into that bar. See, you take the steps to destroy it. That's how we overcome sin. There's work in that. It's the Lord's work. He's going to give you the reminder, hey, wrong street, remember? And you've got an opportunity to listen to God or to disobey God, and guess what happens? You go right back into the sin, into the destruction. And so that's what we see happening here. This is very interesting. David didn't play around with, this, with the idols. He knew that the people of Israel had a history. All through the judges, there was a history of idol worship. I'm not going to give them an opportunity. It's like, <clears throat> look, I want to be careful here. I want to show charity. But um, our children had weddings. And... Uh, all, all three of our girls and our son. And um, I, I, I did not even want champagne served in a toast glass. See, it's just a little thing. To, to you it is, but to an alcoholic who's recovered, who's a Christian, who's now part of God's family and God's flock, you're going to present him with that temptation? I don't think that's wise. See, it's considering others more important than yourself. Now, some of you, we don't, have the, we don't have the power over our kids at that age. They do what they're going to do. You might have a child that says, well, we're going to do it. But they're going to know why I don't want it done. I don't agree with it for that reason. I didn't say to you that I think, you know, a, a glass of alcohol is, is sin. I don't believe that. But I'm not going to in any way, shape, or form cause another brother or sister to stumble over something like that. It's not worth it to me. This is how we as the church should be sensitive to everybody in the body. We're so quick to say, well, that might work for you, but not for me. Well, I've always thought... You're now, you belong to Christ. What you think doesn't matter anymore. 
doesn't matter what you think. Your opinion means nothing to God. Before you were ever born, God had his opinion. And after you were born and all the little things that happened in your life that formed your opinions, you can go off, well, my, here's what I think. Here's what... Uh, God's opinion still stands. And guess what? After you're gone, your opinion dies off and God's opinion still stands. So why not just cooperate with God's opinion? Amen? Don't let your cultural nuances and your, your family traditions that are, that are sinful, don't keep doing them. Join God. Step out of that nonsense. Join God. Do it for the sake of others. When we come to church, let's be mindful of others. If I go into a home of someone who's unsaved, Rini and I, maybe it's a neighbor, hey, we want to have you guys over for dinner. I'll go over and I'll, I'll eat their food. You know, oh, we're going to have, my wife makes the best spaghetti. Like, well, we'll see. <laughs> no, I don't say that to them, but, uh, but we will see. And they serve up, you know, a little glass of wine. Oh, don't. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Because I don't think that that glass of wine is the sin. And they obviously drink. And that doesn't mean I have to drink it either. The point is that I'm thinking about them. I'm not thinking about myself at that point. What is best for them? When people come to our church, they walk in, we form opinions, we have our own little judgments, our mindsets. Get out of that stuff. Get off that train. Get on the train of loving them the way God loves them. Jesus sat with sinners. He ate food with tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus did that. He was comfortable around lost people. For the sake of Christ, we should show that kind of love to people. Amen? Amen. So, <clears throat> they burned them. Verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again. <laughs> it wasn't enough to get blown out the first time. They come up again and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And uh, when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. God now, first time God said, yeah, go take them. This time God says, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Now, the balsam tree leaves would rustle at the slightest wind. So you can imagine... He was saying, God's saying, wait until you hear the rustling of those leaves as this great army marches by. So basically, let them get right up on you. And then you jump out because I will have gone before you. Wouldn't you have loved to have been part of that kind of an army? To be able to see God go before you physically and destroy the enemy? I love that. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gazar or Gezer. Now, it's interesting that when David inquired of the Lord the first time, God said, go. But the second time, God told him 
to use a different approach. We are creatures of habit. We pray and ask the Lord about something, and the Lord gives us a response, an answer. We see, we see it play out a certain way, and we're like, wow, that was awesome. God moved. And so now, what's the next thing we think? I'm going to do the same thing the next time. We, we love methods, methods for prayer. Let's say you go somewhere and you're praying and somebody's really heavy-hearted and they're in sorrow over something and, and a certain prayer was prayed and that person comes out of prayer and they say, wow, I feel like the Lord just lifted that burden off of me. Thank you so much for praying. And we're going, what did that guy pray? How did, what were the words he used? How did, did he lay hands on Did he anoint them? And then we want to go and duplicate it for the next person. That's how we're wired, isn't it? We, we just do. We just think, that's the method. That's the ticket. That'll get the thing done. But here, the Lord did it differently. Jesus never healed blind people the same way. Various ways that he healed people. So the point is not about building some method or trying to repeat something. It's about trusting the Lord that he will uniquely every time do it his way. I don't know what that way will be, but I'm going to go with God. Amen? Amen. <laughs> well, it'd be like, okay, so, um, you know, Bureau Bible Fellowship, we desire to, to one day own our own uh, piece of property and facility. That's the desire of our heart. We've got a meeting coming up, I think, next week with uh, the future facility team because we're working towards always looking for opportunities. Um, but let's say that I get a little anxious and I'm thinking to the elders, I'm just one of the elders, but guys, would you mind if I went to this conference on how to, how to get a building? And uh, there's this preacher over here in Tampa, Florida, who, man, they found this property and they, God just opened all the doors. I need to go over there and hear what he has to say. And I go over there and he's got an outline for exactly what they did, exactly how they did it. And I'm just taking notes, you know, get copious notes. And I come back and say, oh, here it is. Man, God's going to give us a building. And you know what happens when you do that. You flop. <laughs> you get nothing. And you're like, wait a minute. We did exactly what they said to do. You're following a method, not God. That's not our God. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So we're here at Bureau Bible Fellowship for this season. We're thankful for this facility. But uh, our hope is in the Lord, and He has a way to bring us to the right property at the right time, and we're going to be patient and wait on Him. And God's going to do the work. And everybody in this church is going to know that was not the work of the elders. It was not the work of Greg. That was the work of our God. Isn't that going to be awesome? Praise God. Amen. Well, I think we finished up. We've covered two chapters. And tonight, uh, maybe the Lord has spoken to you by the Holy Spirit. Maybe... He's spoken to you about something that we didn't even cover. It's just there in the text, and God grabbed your heart and began to speak to you. However, whatever God's done, I thank God for that work. His Word is powerful. His Word will guide us. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Amen? Amen. We should hide it in our hearts. We should, uh, we should see it. We should see the Word of God as honey to our lips. Well, guess what? You've just been drenched. Your lips have just been drenched in honey. You ought to be licking your chops right now. Amen.
That's how good God's word is. Father, thank you tonight for your word. And it really is. It's your word and it's, it's by your spirit that we're able to grow and we're able to continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus each day. Use this time now, Lord, from the word to transform how we live, how we think. May we live differently going out of here. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.